And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're gonna tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. The Athletic. Big simplification, but I'd say they basically stayed up because of Richarlison and Gordon. Yeah, it's fair enough. If you lose two of your best attackers from last season, you're gonna you're gonna be lacking. Hi, hello, welcome. This is the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, back for another week and brought to you as ever by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell and each week with an array of guests, we talk all things football tactics, tactical trends and much more. And today I've got three with me, Michael Cox, Mark Kerry and Liam Tharm. All athletic tactics and analytics writers are joining me on the pod. Michael, how are you doing? Very well, thank you, Ali. How are you? I'm exceptionally well. I'm very excited for this week's episode. Uh, Liam, great to have you back on the pod after a strong debut. It's traditional for members of the pod who've been away for a week or two to come back and mm. say that they thought last week's episode was the best that we've ever done. <laughs> so I, I, I gather you enjoyed that one immensely. Yeah, I mean, it's been exceptional for the past two years, three years before I came on. So there was a, no change, really. That's what we like to hear. Mark Carey, how are you, friend? I'm good. Thank you. I've got the dream team this week. This has got to be one of the most we've had in a while. We certainly do. I feel like King Arthur, we've got a serious roundtable discussion. <laughs> the episode's title, in my eyes, is The Anatomy of a Poor Start. We're going to look at the first three weeks of the Premier League season and particularly focus on the five sides who are winless through three games, all five on two points or, in some cases, fewer. We're going to work out what's happened how concerned we should be. We're not going to be over the top and hysterical about things. We just want to pick the bones out of five sides who have not started as they would have liked to. Uh, notable by their absence, Michael, in the bottom five at this very early stage of the season, other three promoted teams that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago on the pod. You saw one of them, Fulham, pick up their first win of the season, 3-2 against rivals Brentford on Saturday. Entertaining afternoon at Craven Cottage. Tell me about it. Yeah, it was very good. Obviously, the highlight was seeing you just beforehand for a drink, <laughs> Ali. You were off to QPR Rotherham. I was off to Fulham Brentford. I think I got the better end of that deal. <laughs> you did. Um, <laughs> but it was good. I mean, Fulham have been good so far. They were really good on the opening day against Liverpool. I think they're unfortunate not to get a win there. Against Wolves, they, they missed a penalty. Could have won that game as well. And this one, obviously, they won it in the last minute. But I think they were the better side over the course of... 90 minutes. And I know we've spoken so many times before about Mitrovic on this podcast. And I've always said, I think one of the really big uh, big clubs should go for him. And obviously there's been debate about whether he can do it in the Premier League, but he just completely dominated this game. I mean, it was all about him really. And I think he's, you know, as you will have seen previously, Ali, he's just a much better all-round player than he was a couple of seasons ago. He's playing in a team that suits him. Um, And Fulham just look good. They look cohesive. They've got a back four that's played together for a, f- a few years. I mean, it's it's four defenders who are familiar from their previous Premier League experience. They've got a better goalkeeper now in Bernaleno. Um And they just look a really good unit. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm impressed with what Marco Silva has done there. So am I. Really impressive first few performances. Silva did his reputation a world of good last season by taking that job and doing more than what was asked of him. Promotion expected, sure, but scoring the amount of goals that they did and exerting that level of dominance was a huge achievement. Of course, such a a different prospect moving up to the Premier League, but so far, a very strong start. Forest have a win, a draw and a defeat so far. Liam, what have you made of their first three games in the Premier League? Good, I think. If you ask ask any Forest fans, I think that's probably a good point to return. It's the uh, age-old win at home, sort of draw away. Uh, the opening game week against Newcastle, where they were, I think, a bit slaughtered. Really, um, quite a few had, had written them off. So, I guess to, to bounce back quickly and, and get some points on the board uh, is good. Shape-wise, it's sort of what we expected. You know, nice, nice back three. The the sort that they came up with um, and integrating the the new signings well. Um, and good to see Brennan Johnson sort of fairly early on uh, on the score sheet as well. Absolutely. I am excited for Morgan Gibbs-White. I personally mm. 
don't really care how much money players cost. I am looking forward to watching him play for Steve Cooper, manager that managed him to an under-17 World Cup, a system with a very clear role for him to thrive within. I'm really looking forward to that. I saw a couple of flashes in that cameo against Everton that, that we saw much of in the Championship last season. And Mark, you can take Bournemouth. The Cherries got their win straight up against Villa on opening day. Since then, two defeats. Uh, Arsenal on the weekend, too strong for them. Uh, what have we made of how Scott Parker's approaching things, making that formation tweak? How are they faring? Yeah, well, I mean, as you say, they've had some tough fixtures, obviously playing Manchester City and Arsenal. Um, I mean, it, it sounds a bit cliche, but they're the games that you, they're not expected to pick up any points from. But but beating Villa on the, the opening day is always strong. I think the fact that they've not had the threat of Solanke the past couple of games. I think it's an ankle injury that he's got. means that they haven't been too uh, potent at the the attacking the attacking end. I think that cumulatively they've created chances worthy of one goal so far, which across the three games is the lowest of any side so far. So they need to obviously sharpen up that attack, um, but simply because Solanke's been out of the, the side the past couple of games and that will hopefully change quite soon. So let's move on to the five sides that we're going to talk about in more depth. We'll start with... Liverpool, winless through three games, a two-all draw at Craven Cottage on opening day, uh, and then one all at home to Palace and 2-1 away at Manchester United. All three of these games televised. Everyone's had a good old look at Liverpool to start the campaign uh, and what's been a slow start. Uh, Michael, let's pick up with the anatomy of that defeat to Manchester United. Um, from a tactical performance sense, what was your key takeaway from that game? I was just really surprised how bad Liverpool were across the pitch, to be honest. I know they only lost 2-1, but I thought it was a fairly disastrous performance. Just nothing seemed to go right. I thought the defence was remarkably open, particularly on the right-hand side. Joe Gomez, I think, is um, a talented player, but I think him and Alexander-Arnold together on that side of the defence lacks a, a real natural defender. I think in midfield, they were quite open and, and they've got a lot of criticism for that. And up front as well, the, the front three just seemed so disconnected. Salah was very wide. Firmino was deep, but not really orchestrating much. And Diaz, I thought, was the brightest of the three um, on the left. But there were just no real positives from that performance, I didn't think. It was um, surprisingly subdued at times as well for Liverpool. It felt like it took a while to get going. I was quite hoping we weren't going to be taking the sort of uh, hysteria route there, but <laughs> disastrous used within the first start. So we've set the stall out early. Um, Mark, look, so so many reasons, if you like, so many subjects for blame. Um, nine first-team players injured, of course, it is probably the place to start. Um, what is considered by parts of the fan base to be quite unambitious recruitment from the club. Perhaps certain players who have been huge successes in the past or part of huge successes on the decline or not hitting the levels of before. And then tactically, that dangerously high line that, that can leave them open if people aren't absolutely on their game. How do you weight all of the different things that go into this this potion? I was going to say it is very much all of the above mixed together. I think, I mean, Michael touched upon it before. I think the midfield for me is kind of a, a key issue. I'd, Part of the, the issue being injuries, um, you know, to greater or lesser degree, they've had Thiago, Cater, Jones and Oxlade-Chamberlain all injured um, at, at the moment. I think that, you know, you forget how much quality Thiago brings to, to Liverpool until he's no longer in the team, you know, in terms of building up the attack, collecting off the defence and threading those those forward balls, those progressive passes into uh, into the forwards. and. There was just none of that against Manchester United at all. It just seemed really disconnected, runners just too far away from each other and there was no kind of cohesion, as as Michael said. And I just think, yeah, the, the wider thing is probably the, the midfield. And obviously the, the favoured midfield of Fabinho, Henderson and Thiago, who I think played about 45 minutes together this season before Thiago went off injured in the, the first half of the Fulham game. They're so key to the attack in terms of building the play and starting those attacks. But I think they're also so key in the protection of the, the counter-attack defensively. And Liverpool have really struggled with that in the past couple of games. So no coincidence, as, as Michael said, with that, that right side that... The Zaha goal for Crystal Palace and the Sancho goal both came down that, that right-hand side as well. And I think it's a bit harsh on Harvey Elliott because he is still so young, but he's really good on the ball, really good at you know picking some nice, neat passes, but he doesn't provide that same defensive um, yeah. ability that maybe Henderson does when he's on, on the right of a three. So it's kind of a little bit um, just getting that alchemy right in midfield, which I think is key at both ends of the pitch for Liverpool. I know they've got injuries, including in midfield. Thiago's a big loss, but... 
They did leave out Fabinho. I mean, he was left mm. on the bench. And, and I just felt Klopp, probably five or ten minutes in, just when he saw how the game was going, probably already regretted, I think, yeah. not playing Fabinho there, just to be a little bit solid and, and protect the defence. I think it was notable that the first change he made after an hour when they were 2-0 down was bringing on Fabinho for Henderson. I mean, how often would you see that aside 2-0 down? And the thing that they do to try and change the game is bring on a holding midfielder. I think that was probably a bit of an error by Klopp. Mm. Of course, United's strong start and their quality really played a big part in this game as well. It's not what we're focusing on in this episode. Liam, it's seven Premier League games in a row now that Liverpool have conceded the first goal, stretching back to last season. Uh, Watching all of those opening goals back, what are the key themes and and patterns that we're seeing here? Yeah, I know Klopp sort of spoke about this. I think it was post-Fulham when they sort of pushed the idea to him about potentially starting badly quite a few of those I think it was four um, have come in sort of the first 15 minutes and again it wasn't that early against United but still they're definitely on, on the back foot sort of early doors and Stu James has done a great great piece on that so definitely people should sort of read and he, he breaks it down more in depth but I think on sort of a real tactical level as Michael's highlighted with with the wide areas um, issues sort of tracking runners Mark, Mark and I were having quite a interesting discussion sort of watching the game um, you know about who was sort of at fault um, or really the sort of succession of errors if you like for uh, United's opening goal um, and and just off off the back of that it's a difficulty to sort of block crosses uh, to track overlaps this was the same for uh, a cross they conceded from uh, Villa I think Doug, Douglas Ruiz scored um, and Mbappé crossing for Mitrovic again there's a lot of talk rightly so about possibly Trent defending at the back post or you know the central defenders what they're doing aerially but to allow those players to be getting into sort of clear positions to cross without any pressure, um, you know, you're going to concede deliveries in, and when there's good aerial targets, you know, the uh, result is not quite inevitable, but you're definitely facilitating that. Michael Trent Alexander-Arnold. A lot of the discussion about Trent Alexander-Arnold's defending focuses on the discussion about Trent Alexander-Arnold's defending. Just talk me through Trent Alexander-Arnold's defending and how much of an issue this is or not. Well, I think it is an issue, yeah. I mean, there's they conceded in a Champions League final from him not really defending the back post properly. I feel a little bit sorry for him in that situation. I think the ball did just fall well for Vinicius. I've also got some sympathy with him for being beaten by Mitrovic in the air, as he was on the opening day. But he seems to just not be tracking runners at the moment. I mean, the two goals against Manchester United, he did just stop running. I, I think there's probably a, a debate that for the second one, he wasn't going to... He wasn't going to help, but he did just stand still as Rashford runs, you know, 30 yards past him, which does look quite weird. Um, and the first one as well, I thought he just didn't didn't track a langer. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I love Alexander-Arnold. I think he's a brilliant player and I still think his creativity means that you, you can tolerate his defensive weaknesses. But when it is just stopping running, I think you do have to, you do have to question quite why he's doing that. Mm. Mark? You recently wrote, a, a, or co-wrote, I should say, a piece titled Premier League title race. How many points can Liverpool drop and still beat Manchester City? Uh, what, were, what were the answers? <laughs> yeah, it's a fun title for that, wasn't it? It's, that was a piece I did with, uh, with Andy Jones. And I think it's a difficult question to obviously answer that reliably. But within the, the piece, I included a, a graphic that basically showed the record of the title winners in terms of the wins, the draws and the losses since uh, the 2000-2001 season and, and how that's changed over time. And essentially, if we were to even look back across the last five seasons, the title winners have drawn an average of four games all season and lost an average of about three to four games. So the fact that Liverpool are already halfway there in terms of draws doesn't exactly bode well for you know how perfect they then need to be for the rest of the season. Obviously, yet to, to win a game, but... Manchester City have dropped points as well against Newcastle at the weekend. So, okay, it's just one draw, but there's been some results already that you maybe wouldn't expect from both sides. Um, But I think for me, it feeds into a wider point that I think this is just going to be a really odd season with the World Cup sandwiched in between. I think that it's maybe not the most reliable to look back at previous seasons to inform this one, because I think this is going to be quite a strange season. And they have home games coming up against Bournemouth and Newcastle in midweek and then uh, the derby against Everton. Three more games. I think it's unlikely that we'd talk after six games with Liverpool still winless. I'm sure things will improve. But while we have this moment, Michael, uh, a more general point comparing them to Manchester City, which is inevitable uh, given their rivalry over the last few years for the Premier League title. A few weeks ago, we spoke about Pep Guardiola and City 
being very proactive with what we might call evolution in terms of playing style and in terms of, of the makeup of their starting 11, making signings and changes tactically before things stop working, even after a season where they won the league and scored so many goals to try and stay fresh. Is there a danger that Liverpool may find themselves in need of evolution in terms of style, approach, personnel, whatever it may be, but perhaps have been slower to react to that compared to Manchester City? Well, I think Guardiola always is very proactive in that sense. And I think other teams sometimes might lag behind. But personally, I think Liverpool have done this, really. I think Nunes is a different type of striker. I think that's an attempt at evolution. Diaz, to a certain extent, um, maybe you could say was just a replacement for Mane, but a slightly different type of player. Thiago, when he came in, I know that was two years ago, but he was a different type of midfielder. And the defence, I don't think, really needs that much evolution aside from you know, finding a, a good centre-back partner for, for Van Dijk. And Konate, I think, when he played last year, did really well. So I'm not sure I necessarily buy that line of argument. I think they're probably going about things pretty much right in that respect. And they've got some youngsters to come through. I mean, Elliot's playing a lot. They've got Curtis Jones. I really like Carvalho. I don't quite know what position he might play, but I think he, he has a really bright future. So I think they're doing all right on that front. I think as well, it's the opportunity to actually have that evolution as well. If Thiago's injured after 50 minutes of the first game, if Nunes goes and gets a, a red card against Crystal Palace and they're not able to actually implement any evolution that they might want to do um, fully. So I don't know whether there's maybe a, a move towards a 4-2-3-1. Carvalho could play in that that number 10 role like he did obviously for, for Fulham. Jota could maybe play there. Firmino could, uh, could play there as well behind uh, Darwin Nunes. So... All of these things could still happen, but it's just having the, the players available on the pitch to implement it. Okay, on one point, Wolverhampton Wanderers lost on opening day at Leeds United, squandered some big chances in that game, drew 0-0 at home to Fulham uh, and then lost 1-0 to Spurs. Interesting one to chat about though, Liam. I have been quite impressed and have enjoyed watching Wolves at times this season. They were one of the worst attacking teams in the league last season and they've only scored one goal from their three games so far. But in build-up and in chance creation, there's been a fair amount to like and I noticed they've taken the second most shots from open play so far. So a little livelier going forward perhaps than the than just the pure goals numbers suggest. Hmm. Um, they've taken the, the second most as you say maybe they shouldn't be shooting so frequently I know Mark sort of <laughs> looked at some of the numbers that uh, the the rate at which they're sort of shooting from distance is, is quite high um, from what I've seen and sort of read I think they're going through sort of a, a system change that um, Bruno Lars is trying to make them more of a possession oriented team and obviously been you know a very good counter attacking side previously um, but from watching back their shots and I'll confess that I've not watched a full game but I did, did go through all their shots and a lot of them are still these vertical attacks you know breaking quickly but they're often struggling to get sort of numbers ahead of the ball they need players to sort of combine through and often it's a player dribbling or there's not many options and I think that makes it quite easy for the defence sometimes to be able to predict and to be able to sort of block shots and you, you look at their most frequent shooter is Ruben Nevers uh, with six and ten players have had multiple shots and you know how much Ruben Nevers uh, sort of likes to go from range so I think that's sort of underlines the problem definitely lacking a, a Raul Jimenez figure in there someone needs to stop Ruben Neves from shooting from <laughs> distance it's if you look to his shot map since he moved to the Premier League since he was obviously got promoted it's ludicrous just how many are up, just all outside the box but I thought that I watched the, the Wolves game against uh, Spurs and I thought in the first half in particular, I thought they were fantastic in controlling the game. Really good technical trio of Moutinho, Neves and, and now Matias uh, Nunes in the middle, really starting to to dominate the play and being more possession-based, as you say. Um, just to add the numbers, the, the XG per shot, so the quality of the shots that Wolves have had is 0.07 and that's the joint third lowest in terms of the shot quality. So they need to get that balance right in terms of quantity and quality um, and more than half of their shots have been outside the box as a team so just backing up what you said Liam 55% of their shots have been outside the box so far small sample size but still true um, and they've got so many good wide players but I just think they need that focal point right in the centre of the uh, the penalty area well heavily linked to one so that works well Sasha Kalajic was a big favourite, I believe, of Tom Warville uh, previously of this parish. I remember him coming up a couple of times when we were talking about unicorns and quite unique FC a couple of <laughs> years ago, heavily linked to Wolves. Uh, Mark, could he be the answer to the sorts of questions that they need to answer? 
It could be, yeah. I mean, it's it's worth reminding everyone that he's about six foot six, six foot seven. Um, so certainly a big imposing figure, a real focal point of the attack. Um, it's a bit cliche to say that he's a bit similar to Peter Crouch, but I think the analogies do kind of make sense in that he has good feet for a big man. Some of his technical sort of quality in terms of his finishes um, are actually really impressive. If, if people were to, to look back at the video and see some of his finishes, of course, there's going to be a lot of headed finishes as well, given his height. So that's still good well, has from he a focal got, point. Has he got a good head for a big man? Because <laughs> this is, a, a, you know, I won't mention any names in particular, but sometimes you see a six foot six, six foot seven striker who is thrust into the role of target man by default. And you can just tell that they'd rather be 5-7 and playing in the hole. <laughs> they, don't, they don't really fancy it. Does he fancy it, so to speak? I, I'd say so. I mean, he just has obviously that that natural height advantage. But I think a lot of the headers that he's scored from um, over his over the past couple of seasons have actually been from good movement rather than just climbing on the, the defender, maybe in a Mitrovic style. I think it's been from, from good movement and, and, as I say, better movement than people would maybe give him credit for, given his height. Um, the fact that he's only 25 as well, you know, you'd be getting him at a good age. He's been rumoured with a lot of clubs, I think, this summer. Um, not too prolific last season. I think he scored just five non-penalty goals, but he was out for a shoulder injury for, for some time. So obviously you can forgive him for that. But, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, I think that Wolves have so many good wide players. They've obviously got Neto and Podence, Guedes now, Traore, of course. Um, but they need that player to, to feed into. And that neither one of those, none of those are uh, necessarily prolific themselves but they have the ability to be able to get past a man, get across in, and they just need that finish. And unfortunately, Raul Jimenez, since his, since his injury, really hasn't hit the heights that he did previously. And, you know, Kalatic might be that, that player. Definitely some positive signs, Michael. That first half against Spurs, some of their attacking play, their, their inventiveness and, and getting the ball in and around the Spurs box, even if the, the final shot or pass was, was lacking. And on paper, this is... This isn't analysis, but on paper, it is a very fun team. Um, I don't think the Portuguese revolution at Wolves needs too much more airtime, but just <laughs> looking at the starters from that game, you've got, as Mark mentioned, Guedes and, and Nunes, the, the new signings, Neves, Neto, Pedence, all starting, and then lovely João Matinho, old man River, knitting it all together. It's not hard to project forward and see how this team could be quite exciting if Large can, can get the balance right. Yeah, I think they'll be good. I, I'd never rely on Wolves to be exciting. Um, I must say, <laughs> they always are a little bit underwhelming, I think. But in terms of quality, yeah, I agree with you. I think Guedes and Nunes are really good signings. They'll obviously take um, a little bit of a, a little bit of time to, to settle in. I don't know whether Wolves have got any other Portuguese speakers who might be able to help <laughs> them out. But um, it, to me, it, it kind of just sums up the fact that, you know, with the transfer win window ending late, and very late this season because it's five games in because we're packing, you know, we started early and, and it's the end of August as usual, the transfer window ends. There's going to be some of these sides that are in flux a little bit um, and haven't got their sides assembled until start of September, really. Um, and I think we're going to talk about another of those sides later on. But I do think it is a bit of an issue at the start of the Premier League season. Why can't we just close the window on the, <laughs> the night before the season starts? That's a, that's a direct question. Why can't we do that? Well, we did try it, didn't we? I mean, I think this originally goes back to, if you go back 10 years, all the European seasons kind of started at different times, maybe more than 10 years, but the, the seasons always used to start at different times. So like Italy would always start the first week of September. The transfer window would close the end of August and that worked out well. But England always starts kind of mid-August. All the other seasons have kind of shifted towards mid-August. And so you had this bit of standoff, a bit of a standoff where the Premier League went early, hoped everyone would follow suit and they didn't. I, I still thought it was worth the Premier League doing that, to be honest. I just think the Premier League is in such a, a position of power anyway, financially, that it didn't really make that much difference. I think they were always going to be all right. But I do understand why they consider it a bit of a disadvantage. But yeah, I do think it's a shame, not just in terms of assembling the teams, but also just the kind of discussion around football. And when you pick up a newspaper on a, you know, on a Sunday or on a Monday and the, the back page headline is usually about a transfer rather than about a game that's just mm. happened, which I find maddening, but there you go. Yeah, I think you'd struggle to find a, a football podcast less interested in transfers and transfer <laughs> rumours than ours. Um, you know, whatever you're into. This is the Athletic Football Tactics podcast in our second and final part. Three more teams to discuss. Everton, Leicester 
and West Ham United. Three teams without a win in the Premier League season. We'll discuss whether it's poor performance, a bit of bad luck or a bit of both. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello, I'm James Richardson. If, like me, you've ever felt like one of Cantona's cows watching gamely as football steams past like an express train, then why not join me three times a week over on the Totally Football Show? This Monday, for example, I'll be joined by Daniel Storey, Tom Williams and Benji Lenyardo to explain what actually happened this Premier League weekend. Huh. Tuesday, it's the turn of the Euro crew, Horncastle, Honigstein, Alvaro Romeo and Julian Laurence to drop knowledge on all the continent's big stories, including this week the biggest last-minute comeback in Bundesliga history. Woof. Thursday then, it's back to our septic aisle to preview the weekend's Premier League games again with data beta Duncan Alexander and this week, analysis from Karl Anker and Adrian Clark. Join us then for cogent insight, fun and a few feeble puns plus the odd move from me. Just search for The Totally Football Show wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's start with Everton. One point from three games, a 1-0 home defeat to Chelsea was followed by a 2-1 defeat at Villa Park and a one-all draw with Nottingham Forest last weekend with a late winning goal. Always good to see a goalkeeper assist. Liam, I think my first question when I was thinking about Everton and what I wanted to hear from you guys is they were so poor for so much of last season. Desperate, really. And it was tough to watch and it was disappointing to see, really. So what I want to know is, are there any differences to last campaign? Any improvements or, and I grit my teeth in asking it, anything that looks even worse? Obviously, the points don't look good. Um, as you say, they they ended last season, you know, despite sort of scraping survival, not not in a good way. Um, I think it's been a lot of talk around their sort of central midfield personnel um, and their, their shape and obviously having one of the best central midfielders in Premier League history as, as the manager uh, or head coach is, you know, surely then an even bigger thing. And I think it's always interesting in how people perceive the solutions that you can have to, to these problems. 
as we mentioned, transfers are often seen as a direct solution. But this thing now, sort of positionally retraining players, I think has become really fascinating. We we saw with Joe Linton last season at Newcastle, uh, starting to you know drop deeper and be really really good. Uh, and we're now sort of seeing that with Alex Roby as well. So someone who sort of coming uh, coming through academy levels and sort of early in his senior career. I very much remember as you know a winger, yeah, inverted winger, and is now playing sort of in uh, a deeper pivot role. Really, um, watching them against Villa was literally the the deepest midfielder, allows them to push those those wing backs on, um, and I, I just think that's that's really cool. He's got a real sort of neat um, passing library. He's quite adventurous. Often likes to go for a through ball. He was repeatedly sort of finding Anthony Gordon, who you know might not be there for much longer, but I think having those players that can unlock similarly with Wolves, maybe their issue, um, having those players that can find. And those those key players are um, really really important, and I think they're definitely upgrading um, in central midfield. Amadou Anana, another signing that they picked up, is is a really good, uh, really tenacious tackler. Another big guy, so maybe the the size profile in the Premier League is is slowly trending upwards. Um, but I also think that he is someone from what I've watched, uh, definitely more of a final third passer, whereas Iwobi seems to be a lot more in the build-up. And um, just to quantify it, because I, I know Mark likes a stat, uh, Alex Iwobi's <laughs> had the most touches, uh, the most passes and most shot-creating actions of any Everton player this season. Yeah, I've always felt this about Iwobi. He's a strange player. He came through and he was classified as a winger and people expect him to be direct and skillful and tricky, but he's always been a much more kind of patient, intelligent operator. I always thought at Arsenal he played best when... He played with wing-backs and he could just feed wing-backs on the outside, playing quite, I suppose, simple but effective passes. I didn't quite expect him to be, you know, transformed into a central midfielder, but I do think it does suit his skill set. He's not really a dribbler or an assister or a goal scorer, but does have lots of footballing intelligence. So it kind of makes sense. And I've been, uh, yeah, I've been enjoying his role. Um, probably the one of the few highlights of Everton so far. Is he a strange player or are we and the managers that he's played under, the beholder, if you will, just missing the point until now under Lampard? Uh, Mark, within the numbers, small sample size, Claxon, uh, any reasons for cheer, hope, any glaring weaknesses? I mean, I'll, I'll keep it positive uh, and say that the, I guess the attacking threat of Damari Gray and Anthony Gordon has been reason for, for promise from an Everton perspective. They still need that focal point of a player ahead of them. A bit like Wolves, really. They need that um, that number nine. I know that Rondon at the moment is where well, he played at the weekend. Calvert-Lewin's obviously injured. When he's fit and firing, you'd, you'd say that he would be the profile of player, but I think they need someone else through the door if they're going to have a bit of depth in that regard. But Gray and, and Gordon behind whoever that number nine is is really strong. I think that, as an aside, I think the individual quality of Damari Gray is is maybe underrated, similar to say about Iwobi maybe, not necessarily from a role perspective that maybe just in terms of quality perspective, I think when he's fit and firing, he's a really strong player. Um, and of course, it's still very early days, as you say, but Gray and Gordon are amongst the top 10 players for shots taken so far. So it shows they are posing a bit of a, an attacking threat. They dovetail really neatly between them. But again, we won't associate ourselves too much with transfers, but the question is, of course, whether they'll hold on to Gordon for the rest of the season. But if they do... Gray and Gordon as a combination behind a central striker could be really exciting for Everton. Michael, Liam and Mark, bless them, are focusing on the positives now and, and that's right to do because we didn't want to be hysterical. I am just going to ask a direct question though because we also want to give the full picture. Are Everton still bad? I'm, I, I'm a little bit worried about them, I've got to say. I, I don't think their performances so far have been very impressive at all. I mean, last year... Big simplification, but I'd say they basically stayed up because of Richarlison and Gordon. And if they lose both those two, I think they're looking much weaker. Lampard has been very honest about the fact he wants a, another attacker in. Um, and much as sometimes I think managers need to look within their own squad and find solutions, yeah, it's fair enough. If you lose two of your best attackers from last season, you're gonna you're gonna be lacking. Um, I can't really see that much to be positive about, to be honest. I think um, an interesting pattern from their last two games against Villa that they lost and against Forest that was a draw at the weekend was that they were really dull games and then there was loads of action in the final 10 minutes. And that to me, I don't know, maybe I'm being harsh, but that almost feels like a like a relegation battler, you know, like a side that don't have that much of a plan but are happy to throw the kitchen sink at it late on. Um, so yeah, I've I got to say, I'm, I'm, I do fear for Everton and I do fear a little bit for Lampard because... Um, 
it's tough really to see what the plan is. It, it feels like if they do get another, if they do sign another really good attacker, that attacker might, the team might end up being based around them, really. I know they got Calvert-Lewin to come back, but, the, you know, the, the starting eleven and, and the lack of strategic approach, I think, looks really worrying. Do you have an idea of what a functioning Frank Lampard Everton side would look like if they signed let's say the perfect number nine if they kept Gordon added one or two wherever they needed it on paper do you have an idea of what that team would look like if they could settle and get going no I don't necessarily and that's not a criticism but I just think they they are so desperately in need of another good attacker that it could be almost any type of player and that player could end up dominating the team um I mean, we did a podcast about Lampard probably best part of three years ago now. And I think at times at Chelsea, he was he was quite a good tactician. I remember a couple of victories over Mourinho's Tottenham that were really impressive. Um, but I, I thought the job he did last year was almost like a like an emergency kind of firefighting effort. And I think there's a big difference between doing that and actually creating a philosophy... Um, for a club over the, the course of a season. I wonder whether that's even possible. It's not often you see managers do that. Um, yeah, he did well to keep them up, but we're not here to do predictions, but I wouldn't be confident he'd be here for the whole season. And Everton do have a track record of changing managers midway through a campaign as well. Would you say that the success of his performance last season was arriving late in the season <laughs> from the man that, that, that made that his calling card arriving late into the box. Uh, how about Leicester City? They're also on one point uh, from a two-all draw with Brentford on opening day, which was followed by a 4-2 defeat at Arsenal and a 2-1 home reverse against Saints, having been 1-0 up. Mark, I felt the following were always a given when it comes to, to Leicester City under the current ownership. Well run, good recruitment, great backroom staff and a manager that's well supported. So what is happening here? Because right now the snapshot is not rosy at all. No, I think those things are all still true for for the most part. But as you say, just currently, there's a bit of discontent at the club. I think obviously over the, the summer, the fact that they've, I think they're the only Premier League side not to bring out not to bring an outfield player um, into the club. I think they've brought a goalkeeper in um, from Cardiff. You'd probably know better than myself, Ali. Um, I think that's just a third choice, isn't it? Is it Smithies? Yeah. Yeah, Smithies, that's right, yeah. Um, Which means that, yeah, going out of the the team, obviously Kasper Schmeichel has has gone out of the side, gone to to Nice, and Danny Ward has just stepped up. He's just been waiting in the wings for years now, um, but a very good goalkeeper. I think that... They're sort of unsettled, I guess, for different reasons, you know, on the pitch and off the pitch. I think on the pitch, Danny Ward, you know, the communication from a goalkeeper in their their back line is obviously so key. And I think there's been a few maybe teething problems. You think about the the Arsenal goal, I think the one that Xhaka scored, he went to claim the the cross didn't do so well. And I just think in general, you need to make sure that that alchemy is, is okay over a long period. And with Schmeichel having been you know, the goalkeeper for so long. I think there may be a few teething problems in defence. Um, I mean, off pitch, you know, the transfer stuff, we don't want to get too much into it, but Fafana and Tillemans not starting at the weekend, that's obviously not helpful. Um, but I think mainly as a wider point, I think that Leicester have kind of just been a victim of their own success in recent years and the expectation levels have risen so much, but their budget is far more modest than their position in the table has been in recent years. So they've overachieved, the expectations have grown and maybe now it's actually just probably coming to a a simmer of kind of where they maybe should be because their underlying numbers haven't been outrageously good enough for a Champions League finish, even though they were there or thereabouts for most of a couple of seasons ago. Um, So I think that they've just been punching a little bit above their weight and now in terms of where they're at, it might be a little bit more hovering around mid-table. Liam, what's been Brendan Rodgers' tactical approach so far this season? Well, he's not made subs. He's pretty much stuck <laughs> with you know the players he's had on the pitch, which I guess is sending more than a ever. message. Uh, yes, yeah, no, I know. I I thought I'd tread very carefully saying that before I anger Michael and, and we, we start a, a whole new pod on that. But um, <laughs> no, I, I think their their box defending has really been lacking in quality. I don't know whether this is down to largely, at least recently, the absence of, of Fafana and, and playing Daniel Amati as sort of this um, makeshift sort of central defender. And it's weird to me because when I've seen the goals that they concede and they conceded some very good goals as well, to, to be fair, that Jesus one uh, in particular stands out where, you know, if players are sticking at top corner and I think um, the XG shows that opponents are, are running pretty hard, I know, against small sample, but if players are sticking at top corner, there's only so much you can do. 
but their shape's generally quite good without the ball. They they keep numbers. Um, you know, they they hold the shape well. They're just losing first contacts repeatedly, um, which maybe is sort of the reason that, that Danny Ward came for that one cross and dropped it, as, as Marcus sort of alluded to. Um, so whether they need to sort of change how they press, uh, how they defend to avoid sort of defending as many crosses. They were obviously terrible at set pieces last season. Um, and this feels like a similar sort of problem of dealing with an aerial ball. It's now just an open play. Michael, what have you noticed about their slow start? Yeah, well, to pick up off the point about squad size, I think it's been particularly notable that not just they haven't used subs, but the opposition managers have outmaneuvered them through the use of subs. That was very obvious in the first week against Brentford, who fought back from 2-0 down. Thomas Frank changed his side, changed his formation, and they dominated the last 20, 25 minutes. And it was exactly the same against Southampton at the weekend. Uh, Shea Adams came off the bench, obviously a Leicester-born striker, so that was a little mm-hmm. bit rubbing it in their faces. Um, and again, they just seem kind of completely outmaneuvered. And again, I, I know we don't want to do too many knee-jerk reactions on three games, but I'm a little bit worried about Leicester as well. That Their stats are not impressive. I mean, Liam's right that the opposition are kind of overperforming their XG. But you look at Leicester's XG total going forward. I mean, against Brentford, it was 0.5. Against Arsenal, it was 0.7. Against Southampton, it's 0.2. They're not creating chances. Um and I got to say, I, I, yeah, we can't really ignore transfer speculation. I, I know we try and stay away from transfers, but I mean, they didn't have Tielemans or Fafana in the side at, at, at the weekend. So regardless of their future, that I think that has been affecting them. And you have to say, if you're one of those Leicester players that is kind of an up and coming player, looking to have a good career at the top level, I think you'd be looking around Leicester at the moment and really wondering what your incentive to stay around is because just the lack of investment and I think the mood around the club seems really quite negative. Um, so yeah, I don't think they're in serious trouble. I think they've probably got enough in the squad to to stay up and the rest of it. But I mean, even the very kind of sensible Leicester fans that I know are really questioning whether Rodgers should be staying on because at the moment everything does seem to be going a bit wrong. The Fofana focus is interesting to me, Michael, because he only started seven games and he played seven games for Leicester last season due to injuries. Obviously played the first two of this campaign. Is the issue with the Fofana uncertainty that it distracts, that it clouds judgment more so than the player physically not playing for the team? They didn't have him for the majority of last season, so it's not a huge difference compared to that. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. But I think also last season, you did look at them and think they are weak at the back and they are sometimes lacking a centre-back. And when you look at the performances so far of the centre-backs, I mean, I've always been a really big Johnny Evans fan. I think he's a a great defender, has been a great defender, probably still is, but he hasn't looked good this season. He made a really curious error, I thought, against Brentford when he rushed out and played, I think it was Tony onside for the first goal. And really got just bullied by Gabriel Jesus, you know, physically as, as well as kind of in in a positional sense. So they are lacking a little bit in, in that position at the moment. But um, I take your point. It's almost like symbolic as much as, as it is a, a real issue on the pitch. I asked a group of neutrals this week, what's your strongest reason that Leicester won't go down? Because I am pretty concerned with their start to the season. The strongest response was to basically present the names that they have, even if Fafana and Tielemans do leave, specifically Madison, Barnes, Vardy. Is it true, Michael, that with proven individuals like that, a team more or less, quote-unquote, can't go down? It's an interesting question to ask a group of neutrals. Have you got some kind of focus group or something <laughs> that you can workshop your ideas on? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think Madison is sometimes brilliant, but also quite inconsistent. I think Barnes is a really good player, but has had injuries. And I think at some point in the next year or so, Vardy's goals probably will dry up. And I think just you look at the Premier League now and almost all sides do have some good attacking players. You know, players who got relegated last year included Puki, Saar, Dennis, McNeil, Cornet. I imagine whoever goes down this year will have some really good attackers, especially when you look at the, the you know, who Nottingham Forest have bought. Um, the players that Fulham have. So I, I I think it probably will be enough for them to to stay up. I think they've got some decent young players as well that might improve, like Justin, Dewsbury Hall has made a, a decent start to the campaign. But uh, no, I don't think you can just look at three or four individuals and think that would definitely be enough. 
right at the bottom of the table on zero points. West Ham United, David Moyes. Uh, they lost 2-0 to City on opening day, then 1-0 at Forest and 2-0 at home to Brighton this weekend. Liam, you watched that one very closely. From a West Ham perspective, you know, they've been the Premier League's most overperforming team over two years, you'd say, finishing sixth and seventh. So what looks to be missing so far this campaign? I think as well, just to touch on as marks up with Leicester, having a, a high bar for yourself now, you know, you, you are a good side. This isn't overly analytical, but, you know, you play well. People now expect more of you. That that might be the same with, with West Ham now. But I think what stood out in the last two games, because you can probably fairly cast sort of City aside as, as being rather good at football um, and that being a particularly tough game. And, and Michael wrote about their central defensive issues, but I think they're sort of sticking now as well. But against both Forrest and Brighton, who lined up with with a back three slash five, however you want to sort of view it, West Ham stuck with their with their shape, their sort of four two three one that they often go for. And I think Forrest and Brighton kept the ball well, but sort of defended very well in organised possession. When they did lose it, it wasn't really in central positions to facilitate those counter attacks that West Ham want so much. Um, and they really encouraged West Ham to sort of play expansively. And it just ended up being a case of. West Ham being sort of overloaded centrally. Uh, Brighton had their, their box midfield again. Um, and I think the, the second Brighton goal illustrates it really well where Caicedo picks it up and uh, feeds it into McAllister. Uh, and Suchek and Declan Rice are pretty much mannequins because they've not got the cover to go out and press uh, and they have to sort of hold their line. Gets played through to Pascal Gross who, who feeds Leandro Trossard. Um, and it wasn't the exact same sort of goal as what Haaland scored at, at the same end of the pitch. But again, the principle of being penetrated sort of centrally um, just meant they got overloaded. And I don't think in Suchek or Rice, they've got a high quality progressive passer um, that can break lines that way. I think Rice is the better one of the two. And his game is definitely more those long sort of driving runs, um, which again, you need space to do. Let's take a little look at the numbers. Some interesting ones that you dug out, uh, Liam. Perhaps you and Mark could, uh, could take me through West Ham by numbers. Well, yeah, I mean, being the only side in the league to not score a goal is not a great stat for West Ham fans. Um, obviously, that's going to change eventually, but they've, again, very small sample, etc. But they've underperformed against their, their XG more than anyone else in the league. So, granted, they are creating chances to a certain extent, but scoring no goals. And, um, you know, shot accuracy comes into that. They have the lowest rate of, of shot, shot accuracy. Um, and only two sides have worse XG per shot. So obviously the quality of those shots. So yeah, you know, from an attacking perspective, I think they obviously certainly need to improve. I'm really excited by the idea of seeing Skamaka, Gianluca Skamaka more. I think he hasn't actually started in the league yet for, for West Ham. I don't know if there's going to be a way that, that David Moyes can find Antonio and Skamaka together. You know, obviously he likes to play a 4-2-3-1. Anything where they could maybe play as a, a pair could be really interesting. Whether or not that will happen, I'm not sure. But trying to be a little less predictable, which will obviously help their attack, could be really exciting there. I think just to, to build on from that, it's as you mentioned with, with Skamaka, he came off the bench uh, on, on Sunday and Moyes has made 12 or 15 possible subs uh, and brings them on fairly early. 22 minutes um, is their average sort of playtime per sub, which is above the, the Premier League average this season. But even when he has made those changes, it's not affected the shape. It's been like for like. I think he, he sort of pulled Antonio out wide onto the left and uh, moved side Ben Rama inside. So... Again, sort of being persistent and, and sticking with that um, shape is, you know, clearly something that uh, you know Moyes wants to go with. Is there anything in the theory of managerial cycles? I think three years is often what's been agreed upon uh, as as potentially the the limit for a managerial cycle, uh, where the thought being it's difficult to maintain the same exceptionally high standards, striving every sinew for success and motivation with the same sort of voices and the same sort of methods. To what extent do you buy into that uh, and with relation to West Ham and David Moyes? I think it can be an issue. Uh, probably depends on the manager and the style of the manager. I mean, in broad terms, I, I think an interesting thing about Sir Alex Ferguson was that he always changed his assistant, um, whether that was deliberately or, or by circumstance. I think he always freshened up things in that respect. Probably not the best person to be comparing to Ferguson, David Moyes, after he had that uh, comparison before. Um, I must admit, I, I've been quite negative about some of these teams so far. I basically think West Ham will be okay. I, I don't think they've done that much wrong so far. Um, City on the opening day, I think, was just a write-off against a really good team and with um, a pretty depleted uh, back line. 
Forest, the second week, I think was a bit of a topsy-turvy game. There were a couple of refereeing decisions that could have gone the other way. They missed a penalty. I think they could have easily won that game. And Brighton, um, I mean, they were outplayed. I think Brighton were the better side. But actually, when you look at how Brighton have done so far this season, Brighton completely outplayed Manchester United, completely outplayed Newcastle. I think you could make an argument that West Ham have done as well against Brighton as anyone have done. Mm. So I just... I just don't think they're that bad. You know, they haven't changed much from last season. And I realise you can frame that as, you know, it's the same old thing. They need to vary it. But I basically think West Ham will will rise up the table. The only thing I'd say is they could do with beating Villa this weekend. As after that, they've got Spurs and Chelsea. And if if you get to six games without a win, obviously you start asking questions. But I think West Ham are basically fine. Well, Villa famously not in great shape earlier, not not eligible, didn't fit the criteria for this podcast because they did uh, pick up that win at Everton. But perhaps one for us to take a look at over the following week, Stephen Gerrard not having the easiest start to the season either. Uh, apologies if that all felt a little doom and gloom. We wanted to just consider the anatomy of these poor starts to the Premier League campaign. I hope it's been an interesting listen. I've really enjoyed listening to Liam, to Mark and and Michael sift through it all. I'm just going to ask them one question to finish. Michael's already answered it, I think, with West Ham. The question, which of these four will leave out Liverpool? I think we can expect to rise up the table pretty definitively. Which of the other four would you be most confident of improving to the point where if we checked back in in a month's time any concerns or fears would have been massively dampened Michael not too concerned about West Ham what about you Liam yeah I'd go for West Ham as well um, I think Mark I'll on the points brilliantly Mark um, I'm going to go for Wolves I think if they do get a bit more of a focal point in attack they have just a lot of attacking quality in around that fantastic midfield um, and made some really good signings so I think Wolves um, would be higher up in the table in the next few weeks Dare I say it, some transfer movement could prove the difference uh, for any of those sides. Uh, of course, a bit of uh, a bit of variance, maybe uh, a, bit, a bit of reaping from some of the early season sowing. Uh, the ebbs and flows of a Premier League season, we know that some of these teams will start to rise up the table. And we look forward to seeing who it will be. And we look forward to covering this league and others every week on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Thank you for listening. Head to theathletic.com forward slash tactics to sign up for The Athletic. And then when you're not listening to this pod, you can be reading everything that these guys are writing and their talented colleagues as well. We'll be back next week. Subscribe to this podcast feed and we'll see you then. Goodbye. The Athletic.